Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Joel Bryce, and welcome back to another episode of Delta Waterfowl's The Voice of the Duck Hunter podcast. On today's episode, I'm joined by veterinarian Dr. Joe Spoo from Gundog Doc for a discussion on factors to consider when hunting with your dog during cold and icy conditions. Related to cold weather hunting, we cover subjects such as diet and body condition, how some dog breeds handle cold weather better than others, the importance of a good-fitting neoprene dog vest, hypothermia, and the dangers of hunting your retriever during icy conditions. With that introduction, let's bring in today's guest. Dr. Joe Spoo, welcome to the Delta Waterfowl Podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, awesome. And so you're in South Dakota, right? I am, yep. Sioux Falls, South Dakota? Yes, yep, down in Sioux Falls. So a couple of Dakota boys uh, exactly. having a chat here about about gun dogs, hunting dogs, and cold weather conditions. Yeah, we can have it now because all of our ducks are gone and most of the seasons are closed except uh, out around the river, I suppose. It, it really feels like that. Yeah, for, for here in North Dakota, uh, Bismarck, I guess, we have the Missouri yeah. River coming through. You don't have the benefit of that. But, you know, we still do have a lot of open water, a lot of Canada geese, and some mallards that are, you know, hanging on the river right now. So, But not a lot of people taking their dogs out on that fast-moving current this time of year. But, right. but hey, it's, it's, it's worth discussion. So, Joe, uh, what is the temperature in, in Sioux Falls right now? It was supposed to be warmer than it feels. I, uh, I just got done with some appointments, and we're still curbside. And so I was outside talking to an owner, and the, the wind's out of the northwest. And so it, 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 uh, it felt cold this morning. I bet we were in the single digits. Yeah, I think the same thing here. We had a little bit of a warm spell yesterday. It sounds, for those listening in the south, you know, it might not feel like a warm spell. I think it was the upper 20s you know, Fahrenheit, but yeah, you know, we'll take it. You know, we, this is uh self-inflicted pain. I actually like winter, you know, I, I like I it too. less. I like it less and less each year, I think, but, but I, I admit that I like it. I like what it brings and I like the yeah. change in seasons. No, absolutely. That's my, my wife is from Texas and she moved to practice in South Florida before I dragged her up here. And, and just this morning we had the conversation how much she hates winter, but I, I told her we'll always be here. So it, uh, it maybe get to a point where I could see, uh, maybe filing the migration to spend, you know, January, February down on the Texas coast or something later in life. But I, I agree. I, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't survive without winter at least part of the year. Yeah, I feel the same way. So, hey, everybody listening, I invited Joe on to the podcast to talk specifically about hunting dogs and cold weather conditions. And, you know, as a waterfowl, you know, hunting podcast, you know, we're basically talking about water and ice. But before we jump into that, if, if as a listener, you're not familiar with Dr. Joe Spoo, you, you need to be. Uh, this is, uh, Joe is, he is a specialist in the sporting dog world. He has so much to offer. And I spent some time, and I would encourage everyone else to do that as well. I spent some time learning more about Joe, what he, what he talks about. You know, I, it's really interesting to, to talk about cradle to grave is the approach, you know, that, that, uh, that Joe basically says he takes. And if you look at his videos and his articles, that's definitely the case. You can find Joe at a few different places, Yukonuba. Um, sportingdog.com. You can find a little bit about Joe and, the, and what he contributes. Joe, you mentioned Gun Dog Doc uh, yes. is a website of yours. You said you're kind of working on a uh, overhaul We're of We're relaunching it. Yep. I, I've, uh, I don't know. I've, I think I've had it for going on 20 years. I think uh, I, I bought it way back in the early days of the internet and, and it's, it's had probably three or four uh, iterations it's been kind of stagnant for the last several years and so we're in the process of kind of bringing that back to life here after the first of the year Sounds and then great. obviously on social instagram and you know facebook it's it's uh, at gundog doc okay awesome and then also you are a practicing vet currently in sioux falls south dakota yep Yep. I, I, uh, helped build a, a multi-doctor practice here. My wife is a veterinary specialist as well. Um, and so we have a specialty hospital with a, a general practice here in Sioux Falls. Okay. Sounds good. So I, I want to get to know you, Joe, personally, and then we'll take that into more of the professional conversation, you know, about your, you know, about your specialization and, sure. and, and, and the, I guess the standards, let's call them, you know, that you, that you preach. So let's talk, where are you from, Joe? Tell us about your, you know, about your early life hunting, you know, so on and so forth. 
Yeah, so I grew up in Northwest Iowa in the prairie pothole region of Northwest Iowa, kind of the, the last uh, bastion of where the prairie is uh, in that part of the world. Um, and was fortunate, it, honestly, some of my earliest memories are in the front of a duck, but with my dad. And so he had me out before I ever stepped inside a classroom. Um, and to this day, I, I, I think that shaped a lot of the path that I took um, it's probably my first love was was duck hunting with my dad um as a side note this this year uh we hadn't hunted for the last couple of years uh duck hunting because south dakota has a lottery uh, system and he's lived in iowa but i moved him out to south dakota convinced him to move out here this last year so we were able to hunt uh in my six-year-old daughter it was her first season being able to hunt and so it was uh things really came full circle for me this year and that I was able to take the guy who introduced me to hunting out on one of the first hunts with my daughter. And it was a very special thing. Um, and so I grew up hunting. Uh, I was fortunate to have a number of slews within 10, 15 minutes of my house. Um, and so all through high school hunted, went to vet school, uh, undergrad and vet school down at Iowa state in Ames and pretty early on i knew that hunting dogs was where i wanted to be um, and it wasn't a specialty within veterinary medicine so we didn't have sports medicine and rehabilitation uh early in my career in veterinary medicine but i kind of always focused uh everything i've done in practice on on hunting dogs uh, i initially i moved to northern minnesota um, with visions of gordon mcquery in mind of you know being able to to shoot uh the, the bluebills coming through on those northern Minnesota lakes, what I didn't realize is that uh, the bait industry had kind of altered the rice beds and, and kind of my vision of northern Minnesota duck hunting wasn't what was actually occurring there. And so I kept finding myself uh, coming out to South Dakota. And I think my second year in Brainerd, I didn't draw on the non-resident lottery. And so I said, the heck with it i'm going to pack up and that's where i'm heading is to south dakota so i moved here um it would have been probably 2003 and i've been out here ever since um i figure there's not many places that you could practice with this many hunting dogs as as we have are fortunate to have in the dakotas um and and over time i continued to to focus on hunting dogs develop the consulting business with gun dog doc and about i don't know it's probably going on almost 10 years ago there was talk of the formation of the specialty college within veterinary medicine focusing on sports medicine and rehabilitation and i of course um elected to go down that path to to become a, a boarded specialist within sports medicine so so you moved to minnesota for the hunting and you Correct. moved to South Dakota for the hunting, all the while, the obviously. Better, for the better hunting. <laughs> for the better hunting. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm a Midwestern boy myself, born and raised in Wisconsin. And, you know, so I just found myself slowly moving west. And, and obviously, <laughs> yeah, I, you know, there's so many aspects about the Dakotas that uh, are so enticing, right? And, you know, Absolutely. waterfowl hunting, upland game hunting, you know, are two two passions of mine, yours as well. And and so it's a good place and definitely a destination for hunters as well. And I'm sure, you know, a uh, number of years of practicing, you probably have treated dogs that have, and that have traveled out, you know, to, to your neck of the woods to hunt and, yeah, absolutely. And found their way to your practice by way of injury or sickness or something like that. Yeah. Every fall, <laughs> every fall. Hey, you skipped it over. Um, you have, you know, I, I looked and I said, how the heck does Joe do all of the things that he says here. And I say that it also because I understand that you're a father. You're a husband and a father. You have three kids? Yeah, we're doing uh, kids later in life. So I was able to, to uh, focus a lot, a lot, a lot of time on my career early on in the career because um, we didn't have kids. And so, uh, yeah, I have, we have three kids now. So I have a, a six-year-old girl, a two-year-old boy, and then a five-month-old little girl as well. And just because that's not chaotic enough, we share a house with five dogs, a cat, and a fish as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's actually, you know, as a father of two, and, uh, you know, yeah, it's really busy. Between between work, work, travel, <laughs> hunting, fishing, and and then all of the activities that, that uh, come along with kids, sports and training and all that kind of stuff, it's it's amazing. So you, you really do an, an awesome job there. I, I do think... I would like to learn a little bit more. Again, I, you know, from what I've read, Joe, you're one of very few, you know, who are specialists in, let's call them hunting dog athletes. Tell me a little bit more about that. 
So it, it's, you know, obviously from a very early age, all I ever wanted to be was a veterinarian. And so I didn't ever want to be a policeman, a fireman, a race car driver. My parents have clippings from, you know, the newspaper of elementary school of what do you want to be when you grow up sort of things. And it's always been a veterinarian. As I, as I got older and saw the partnerships that we have with these dogs in, in various venues, um, you know, whether that's scent detection, protection, or in the area of my love, which is, is hunting, I, I just knew that that's where I wanted to focus. And as I got further into my veterinary education and into practice, what, what we found out is that we don't have that body of information to, to prove some of our theories or to know if we're going down the right path. And so um, not so much in the last 10 years, but prior to that, I was uh, a pretty heavy marathoner and triathlete. And, you know, there's, there's journals in human performance medicine where, you know, we know the grip strength of 23 year old rock climbers from Sweden. And we don't know, the metabolic changes that occur in hunting dogs, hunting in cold conditions or hunting in hot conditions. And so that's part of where the specialty developed is that we knew that sports medicine is a science in and of itself. We've proven that in human medicine. And, and now we need to kind of start providing and proving that body of information with these canine athletes. And so we've, we've had this, you know, relationship with these amazing animals for, for millennia and but we we don't are we tapping their true potential and and i don't think we know that yet and so we're just barely scratching the surface um with with the specialty college and uh with it being so new and it's kind of a uh untapped potential as to what what can we truly find out about these dogs and and that's what fascinates me and so i i get career add i love practice i love seeing the application and, and meeting with clients uh but i also love research and in finding out more or creating new solutions. And so that that's to me where the, the fit with becoming board certified is that it allows me to continue to practice, but then also to, 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 to explore these other avenues to try to learn more and to, to give back to the field with, with, you know, expanding our body of information on these amazing athletes. Yeah. That, that's amazing. Cause I, yeah, I think like everyone else, when, when I think of a veterinarian, I think routine checkups, shots, you know, injuries, sickness, and that's why you go to a vet. But Joe, you actually right. kind of take it a next level. But I don't, I guess I, I also don't really understand what that is in the sense that you, I understand that you do a little bit of consulting as well with, yep. with owners and their dogs. What, is, what does that involve? So most of the consulting business is actually with industry partners. And so, um, you know, you mentioned my relationship with Yukonuba. Um, and so companies like Yukonuba that are trying to further the science that we know about these dogs and develop the formulas to, to enhance their performance. And so most of my relationships are with companies whose products I already use and, and believe in that are trying to further that mission of, of keeping these dogs active and healthy for as long as we can. And so um, as a side note, I, my, I have a 16 year old setter. She'll be 16 in, in less than a month. Um, and she's hunted this fall. So uh, it, it's one that, you know, I think so often I'll have clients come in that, you know, at, at eight or nine, it's, well, we're looking to retire this dog and, you know, starting to get a new puppy. And it'll just be a magnificent specimen of a dog. And, and it just blows my mind that, you know, instead of thinking, man, maybe I'll get another four years out of this dog or five years out of this dog of doing what it loves and what I love that, that people are, you know, have, have these arbitrary dates in their mind that, Oh, a dog hits double digits. It's, it's done. Um, versus what if we do things that optimize nutrition that, you know, we use techniques from physical therapy to, to address the aches and pains in, in kind of that whole body management. And so you mentioned my cradle to grave approach and, and truly, I think it's, that's the system, right? And it even begins pre cradle with breeding and genetics and, and, and trying to put the odds that as much in your favor of getting a dog, that's going to be the best behaved, the best trained, a, a superior athlete, 
with longevity. And so, you know, that's an important thing as well, because we see um, bottlenecked breedings where we have a, a popular sire or a small genetic pool, and we end up with these great dogs that maybe blow out their cruciates, both of them at, you know, three years of age or dogs that develop cancer at five or six years of age. And so it's, it's putting that all together, you know, the pre-breeding genetics, the, the, the nutrition of the bitch while she's feeding the babies, the, the, you know, as the puppy's growing, as they hit middle age, as they hit geriatrics, it's really doing everything we can to optimize that health for, for longevity and, and not just longevity for the sake of living years, but having active longevity is, is how I look at trying to, to uh, treat every one of my patients. Joe, it's, it's really going to be hard for me to stay on track here, to be honest with you, because <laughs> I, I love everything you're saying. And, and I actually believe that my current lab who's at work with me right now and, and my past dogs, you know, they strike people as, as young, even as nine, 10, 11, 12 year old dogs. And I, and I really do believe that the, the dog deserves most of the credit, but I do think I deserve some of it as well from the way that I care for my animals. And, and so, you know, it's interesting when, when they get, you know, nine, 10, 11, 12 and still hunt, you know, Sure, maybe I'm not putting them through a 12-hour grind, you know, seven days in a row, but we're hunting. We're hunting productively, right. and and that, that, you know, my dog is not, you know, moaning in pain because of their sore or I overhunted them the next day. So I think so much of it is you do have to take that holistic approach um, during the hunt, before the hunt, after the hunt, and, and it's just about, you know, that high quality of life and that what you're going to do may change. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think is, you know, as I get, you know, well into middle age here, uh, you know, I think that that's kind of shifted my focus as well is, is what can I do to, to stay, you know, I I have guys that I come across in practice that are well into their eighties, you know, that are hunting every day of the season. And, you know, I want to be that guy and I want my dogs to be those dogs versus I think there's that self-fulfilling prophecy of, if we think a dog is old and we quit having them be active and, you know, they become a lazy couch potato that, that muscle mass deteriorates quickly and they get fat and they become that old dog versus if we say to your point that you do deserve credit, that we keep them active and keep them going, they can. And, you know, and I think we see it in the human population, you know, my, my dad, I would, you know, choose him in, in, you know, uh, uh, you know, three on three basketball game over a number of guys, my own age, just because he's, you know, bikes every day and lifts weights. And I have a lot of friends that were stud college or high school athletes that you would not guess that today. And, and it's, it's how you take care of yourself. And to your point, how you take care of your dog is absolutely vital for longevity. Yeah, I think so as well. I really do. So I guess we'll stick to the topic. And, and I've, what I found here, Joe, is that I, I I'm going to, and our listeners are, are going to want to hear more from you to, you know, to pick up, uh, you know, other topics, maybe cover different areas of dog care, but it is, you know, it is just, it's the, the week of Christmas here and, uh, in North Dakota and South Dakota and every, obviously, um, recording this podcast. So it's, it's darn cold. And like we talked before, you know, our prairie wetlands are, are frozen. People are starting to um, in, in our neck of the woods, anyway, people are starting to ice fish. You know, if there's moving water, and maybe some of the really large bodies of water are still open. I'm not sure. I haven't gone to Sakakawe or Devil's Lake in sure. in some time here. But so in the you know the mid latitude and and southern states, you know, I think as waterfowl hunters, everybody is hoping for cold conditions, right? They wanna they want the birds to you know to come south, migrate, you know, all the way to Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi. And so everybody's looking for cold weather. So let's talk about hunting our duck dogs in the cold, in cold water. And I do think one of the big things that we'll have to talk about is ice, but we'll talk about that as an individual subject. But Joe, let's kind of start, and I always tell this, people probably are getting tired of this. I, I try to build a, I, I have our conversation structured like a funnel. We start dumping things in the top, and then we have a point that comes out the bottom. But I do think one of the important things to talk about in hunting season is diet. Maybe not, you know, there's a day where you're out hunting and it's cold, but Joe, so much of how a dog handles the hunting season, how they handle the cold conditions must come with diet, doesn't it? Sure. Absolutely. 
And I think, you know, the big thing with diet is looking at it as a big picture thing that you're not going to make those, those micro adjustments and have huge impact. Um, not to say that if your dog goes out and, you know, works real hard, that, that you're going to increase the, the amount of kibble, which is just going to be a calorie thing. But if we look at diet as it relates to hunting dogs, as changing that whole metabolic engine and, and having them geared up for hunting season. And I think where that starts is really looking and, and having an honest, um, honest opinion of, of how hard or intense your hunting season is. And, and the reason I say that is, is that we'll see a lot and not that there's anything wrong with the weekend warrior or the guy that does, you know, maybe one or two hunting trips a year, but you know, that dog that maybe is hunting one day out of the week that, you know, Saturday or Sunday, you don't have kid obligations, you're not working and you're able to get out that dog that's hunting one day a week is going to have a, a ton of difference in its nutritional needs from that dog that's hunting every day or three or four or five days a week. And so I think the first step in looking at that nutrition is honestly evaluating how hard your dog's working. And what happens is, is that I think that, that there's a, a perception that if I feed my dog a performance product, it makes my dog a performance dog. And, and what happens is, is when that non the dog that doesn't work as hard is fed that performance product. Then we have a fat dog that brings its own host of issues as far as, you know, exercise intolerance. It's, it's less athletic, uh, more injury prone things that are going to happen with that dog. And so it's not a knock. If your dog isn't on the hottest formula that a company offers, um, choosing the right nutrition. So my breakdown is, is that if a dog is hunting probably more than three or four days a week, they do need to be on your more traditional performance formula, like a 3020. Uh, what's great about Yukonuba is their new line of performance products now has kind of a sliding scale of protein and fat. And so that all of the bells and whistles that in, in quality of protein and in, in digestibility and all those things are very similar. Now you can choose the product based on how hard your dog is working. And so the, the important point is, is that if you have a dog that during the summer months isn't working very much, but you work really, really hard in the, the hunting season is that we want to get that dog switched onto that performance product, probably about eight weeks before we're going to start needing it to, to utilize that because what happens is it takes about that long for the mitochondria and for the cellular level to, to get used to metabolizing that different diet formula. And so, you know, we're talking now here in, in December, but you know, if, if, you know, our duck season gets rolling the end of September, I might need to be looking at, you know, what's my dog going to look like in, in December, cold weather hunting all the way back in July, because I want it to gear them up and keep them in a good body condition at the start and all through that hunting season. And so it's, it's one that, you know, looking at that dog's performance season and what are we going to do? So if we have that hardworking dog, we get them geared up, we get them on a performance formula with the hopes that, you know, if I start in September, when that, that cold weather rolls in starting, you know, November into December, that I have a dog that still has good body condition to protect them from those bouts of cold that they're not now, you know, beat down, they've lost muscle mass, they've lost fat protection. And now I have this dog that's run down going into that cold weather. And so we really need to look earlier in the season, sometimes in the off season of keeping that dog in condition by the time cold weather arrives for that dog that's working hard. For the dog that is more of the weekend warrior dog that, uh, you know, probably the vast majority of hunters fall into that, um, you know, or the couple times a year, I think that the the battle is is the opposite, that we want to keep that dog in good shape. And so, you know, fluctuate, staying with its base formula, but maybe we just increase the amounts a little bit on the weekends that we hunt hard, and then we scale things back because I'm more concerned about that dog getting overweight, getting unathletic and having troubles because of that. And so to me, we have two different populations of dogs, the, the hardworking dog that, that it's his job every day and, and the weekend warrior dog and, and their needs are different, but the goal of both is the same, keeping them in that ideal body weight in, in muscle mass and fat covering. So when we get into these more difficult decisions, they're both ready to handle those. Okay. That's, that's really good. So I, I want to focus in a little bit on the the switching of food. Mm -hmm. Any tips on 
on that, that transition process from one food type to the other? And, and maybe, yep. maybe just to, to break it into, so Yukonuba, switching to Yukonuba is probably different than brand to brand, I'm guessing. Maybe that's... Yeah, I would say. So yes and no. So Yukonuba definitely, especially what they've done with these, these new performance formulas, that you could bounce from formula to formula, and I'd feel pretty good about that. Not not doing anything, you know, too drastic as far as changes. Um, similarly, like so, your brand to brand question. I think that that similar types of formulas, you'd be okay making a, a switch and not have to do this prolonged, drawn out. I think where where things get a little hairy is that you know the dog food industry. It is a crazy industry right now. You walk into a pet store and, you know, look at the variability um, and, and, and the trend towards novelty. I think what happens there is that, you know, there for a while, it's a huge push and everybody wanted to feed the most unique novel thing they could. And unfortunately, a lot of those novel proteins or those novel products aren't designed with performance dogs in mind. And so, you know, you start talking about, you know, feeding you know, a, a formula made out of, you know, Alaskan doll sheep, well, that protein source is going to be super expensive, right? Because it's mm-hmm. a finite resource and they're not going to use as much in that type of formula. So if you have a formula that has unique protein source and even something as simple as lamb, most lamb products are going to be lower in protein and fat, which is not an ideal formula for a sporting dog. So if we go from one of these, you know, novel boutique type of formulas to a performance formula, yeah, you could run into trouble and you're going to need to do a more gradual change. So I think it's, again, being aware of the big picture. What am I switching from and to? And why was I feeding that? And why am I switching to that? And so if you're you're switching to nutritional philosophy, probably a more gradual change. If, if you're, you know, two companies that are attempting to do a similar thing with slightly different products, you could probably be less gradual. Um, some of that may be my lazy answer when, um, you know, as a veterinarian, sometimes we run out of dog food at home because we're busy. And so we grab a product at the clinic and take it home to feed until you can get to the store to buy dog food. Uh, and I hate gradual mixing. And so I'm more of a, let's just switch and get it done. And so if I do that major switch to a different type of formula, typically what I'll do is feed significantly less of the new formula for a couple of days and then work that amount back up. Um, I can say probably in the last 20 years, I don't know that I've ever mixed dog foods as I've switched, you know, from one to the other, I, I, I just don't have the patience for that. And so I'm usually a, let's get it over with. If, if a dog's going to get loose stools, they're going to get it. Um, I think whether you do a gradual or a quick change. So I'm kind of a quick change guy with a less quantity. Okay. So at least that's, at least gradual transition is not medically necessary. I don't feel so. Well, I, I think I think your opinion carries weight, Joe. Let's go with that. Let's definitely go with that. Hey, so if someone wanted to learn more about different types of dog food, energy demands, what what might be the best for them and their dog, where would you send them? The the, the Yukonuba Sporting Dog website. There's a number of resources on there. Um, it's it's you know one of the things I've I've loved about Yukonuba over the years is that I would say you know, as, as passionate as you are about ducks and birds and wildlife, as passionate as I am about dog health, the folks at Yukonuba are dog food nerds and they are passionate about doing the best for these dogs. And so the, the, it's truly science and research that, that in decades of research that goes into the development of the formulas that we have right now. And so, um, you know, Russ Kelly and Jill Klein are, as fascinating people as you'll ever talk to for somebody like me to, to have these discussions about why are we doing this in, in these dog formulas and what's the impact in, 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 in the why behind it. And so it's not just, you know, what can we put together that works? It's what can we put together that's going to make these dogs work better and live longer. And so the, the resources there, it, a lot, a lot, a lot of science goes into the development of these products. Okay. Yeah. I, I looked there myself. So I was, I was, Actually, hoping you were going to say that because I found it useful. Yukonubasportingdog.com. There's a lot of good information there. Lots of different subjects. Way beyond, way more diverse than I than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. But I was impressed. 
and not to plug my my own podcast, but on the Fueled podcast, I've I've interviewed uh, Russ and and Jill on a couple of the episodes, and those episodes were very educational for me as well. That they, they are both fascinating individuals with a lot a lot of knowledge on this subject. Yeah, it, it's funny you say that, Joe, because I actually think I, I I'm not really sure who I do this podcast for. I do it for our listeners or do I do it for myself? Because I, I pick subjects that I, like, I want to learn more about that one. So let's go. Absolutely. That's I'm, I'm guilty of the same thing. <laughs> I talk to the people that interest me. So yeah, it's a lot more fun that way too. And hopefully that passes on to others. Okay. So nutrition, we really did a great job on that one. So now we're approaching cold weather hunting. So our dog is ready. I, I want to talk about, you know, I, I listened to one of the videos that you had I think it was on Yukonuba Sporting Dog, but it was about it was about hunting dogs in cold water, cold conditions, and you know you kind of divided that subject into hypothermia, and then you 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 divided it into ice. What are your what's your philosophy? So I'm thinking of you know labs, Chesapeake's, oily dogs, you know webbed feet or webbed toes, you know built for the water. Talk about how they're built for the cold. What are, what's your philosophy on? Is it okay to hunt a dog in cold water? Yeah, so I I, I really do believe it is, and so I started um, my dog owning waterfalling crew with the Chesapeake, and that dog would, you know, we'd have a heater in the in the in the in the boat, and that dog would prefer to sit out in the snow, coat covered in ice, and never got cold like she just never got cold and you'd put your hand under her neoprene vest and it was like a furnace and I, I would regularly warm my calling hand in her vest because it just was always hot and so I think the big thing with those dogs is is understanding kind of the environment they're raised in so my dogs live in the house sleep on the bed and and so making sure you know where I get concerned with those dogs is that sudden onset where we go from 80 to 90 degree weather to you know freezing weather is is keeping an eye on them i think dogs that are in healthy body condition with a good coat can withstand a lot more cold weather and cold water than people think and so you know honestly given equal up conditions with with a certain dog those dogs i'm way way more concerned about you know early season dove hunting or teal season or or pheasant opener and heat stroke than i am about hypothermia with those dogs and so you know you talked about this time of year that we're mostly froze um you know i have a number of clients that hunt the river south of here uh, on the missouri late late season when we're talking you know sub-zero wind chills and those dogs do fine in in that type of retrieving environment. Um, I think the big thing is, is that most of those guys are hunting out of big boat blinds that do have heaters. And so that dog makes the retrieves, they come back, they get out of the wind, um, they can dry shake and dry off. I think, you know, that's the part um, that most people have to be conscious of with those dogs is, you know, can we get them out of the water so they're not standing in the water on a, a dog stand and out of the wind. I think the wind robs a lot of heat and it, it's, so I started with a Chessie um, and she had a, a health condition that kind of devastated me uh, and I didn't want to go back to the retrieving breeds. And so for the last 10 years, I've actually duck on it with a cocker. And so that really has kind of brought my attention to how can I push the envelope with that dog and how far without getting her into these cold injury sort of situations. And so it's, it's one that I think, you know, I think people are more aware in cold weather of that dog than they are in hot weather. And so mm -hmm. I honestly, I don't worry about hypothermia in a straight duck dog that is just making retrieves because most guys are getting that dog out of the wind, out of the water in between retrieves. And we don't see those problems. The, the, the problems are going to be a dog like my cocker that doesn't have the thick oily coat and she can make some really cold water retrieves. It's, it's, you know, I have a, the, the, the first can I ever shot is hanging from my, my wall was retrieved by my cocker. And you usually don't think of, you know, early December, late November canvas backs in, in white English cockers. Uh, 
but because of a correct fitting vest, I kept her out of the wind. I'm, I'm able to kind of usually hunt her into the first part of November. Um, occasionally like years like this, where it's warmer, this would have been a December that I probably could have hunted my cocker. Uh, it's just, it's being aware of, I think, wind and getting them dried off. And then a good fitting vest, I think is super important. Okay. So if we look at physiologically, you know, you have your duck dog and your non-duck dog. Now that's too, it's too general of a, a sure. too sharp of a division, but what is it, what is it about a lab or a Chesapeake physiologically that makes them able to withstand these cold conditions? So I think that that's a, a great question. And, uh, I, it's to be honest, physiologically, we don't know. I don't think anybody's done that research and that's a project that I would love to do. Um, you know, we have these ingestible temperature sensors. Now I I'd like to know a little bit more about that. Nobody's done the blood draw work to see, you know, what, what are they running physiologically like, you know, early season versus mid season versus late season. And so that's, that's, um, that's one of the projects that I've actually talked with some colleagues that I think we need to do. I think, you know, more so it's, it's how they're built is, you know, with the coat, with the oil layer, um, you know, my, this current lab that I have, like her coat is like a, a, a beaver pelt. Like it's one of the most luxurious, tightest coats that I've ever felt on a dog. And, you know, I think keeping, keeping the water away from the skin is huge for those dogs versus my cocker you know, you just splash a little bit of water on her and you can see that skin. And so I think it starts there with that insulating layer, um, that, that, that coat and that oil provide to keep the water from contacting the skin where we get that chilling effect. And so the dogs, the retriever, the duck dogs that I worry about are those dogs that say have allergies that have poor hair coats. Those are going to be the dogs that are potentially going to be in trouble this time of year because they don't have that natural protection that they should because they've battled some skin issues. They, the, 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 those layers are broke down in those dogs with poor hair coats or with skin conditions. And so those are the dogs I'd worry about in, in, in that type of cold weather setting. Okay. So body size may not be an indicator in durability? For the I don't cold. think so. I, I'm, I'm more of a small body size guy. So, you know, my Chessie was 62 pounds. This lab is 53 pounds and they're by far as cold tolerant as, as any dog. Um, my cocker at 26 pounds can retrieve a Canada. So I think it's one that, you know, everybody, there was that trend for a while. And I think we're seeing a reversal of that, that, you know, they wanted that 120 pound Chessie, that 90 pound lab. Um, I don't think those dogs stay any warmer and, and it's probably a whole other podcast. I think they're more prone to injury and not longevity and other sort of conditions that I think, I think these well built little athletic dogs are, are where we need to be for a lot of reasons. And, and I think, you know, keep them warm is it's easier to get that dog in, in, in a dog blind or in the, you know, uh, in, in, in these a frames and the different blinds that we have now to get them out of the wind. And it is, this hulking mammoth of a dog that's as big as some of your hunting buddies. I, I think you're right. I think you're onto something there. I I do remember, you know, that period where it was big lab, big lab, get them big, and <laughs> get them hot. And 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 so I, I do favor, you know, more of an athletic lab myself. So I think that did a, a really good job here. I, I have an interesting little story. I remember one of my early years working for, for Delta, we did a I went, I went hunting up in, in Manitoba with a couple coworkers and it was, it was probably the last open water day. And so it was, everything was freezing up. We had a wonderful mallard hunt, but one of my coworkers with two dogs. So I had a lab and he had, let me see if I get that one up. Uh, Munsterlander. Is that how mm-hmm. you pronounce that one? Yep. Yeah. Didn't, not a cold weather, <laughs> not a, uh, a water retrieving dog for cold weather. And I remember that dog went about halfway out to a duck. We were going to take turns. Went out halfway out to the first mallard, swam back, and didn't want to do it. It was just too cold. It was too much. You know, a long, leggy, thin-coated dog. Wonderful dog, but just not built for that type. And so my lab retrieved all the ducks after that. Mm -hmm. But you're right. And, and, And I do think they're built for it. I had a vest on them. And I think anybody that hunts with their dog in cold weather and your hands are cold. It's amazing you can stick your hand underneath their vest, and it can be soaking wet, and it's and it's still warm. But let's move into okay. Now we're on the hunt itself. Okay, yep. I always have my lab with a vest on it. Is that I, I'm imagining? You know, that's probably the only piece of equipment um, that you'd recommend anybody have for their 
for their dog jumping into the water yeah. like that? In, in one, I just, I want to back up just for one second. So, you know, you mentioned the monster lander, I've mentioned the cocker. I, I, I think that that, you know, needs to be maybe visit just a little bit that there, we have so many, especially like here in South Dakota, and I'm sure up there you do as well, versatile hunting dogs. And it's not to discourage those people from using their dogs on ducks in, but I think it's being smart at the time of the year that you use them. Um, those dogs are great. My cocker is one of the best duck dogs I've ever hunted with. You know, she's super calm. She's super attentive. Um, but she's not built for late season. And that's where, you know, we have a lot of wire hairs, a lot of short hairs, wonderful dogs, wonderful retrievers. It's the late season that I think that, that people need to be conscious that there are certain breeds and, and just because you have a one-off, so you might have that wire hair that's got the super thick coat that is able to, you know, hunt in December. It doesn't mean your buddy's short hair because it's also a versatile dog can. And so I think it's, it's being conscious of those non-typical retrievers in their abilities and in, in not pushing envelopes because those are the breeds that we'll see that the hypothermia in is, is, you know, as you mentioned, your monster lander, it'd be like me sending my setter on a retrieve that, you know, those dogs are great in the uplands late in the year, you know, but if my setters get wet, I have a buddy that runs, runs pointers, you know, they get wet and they shut down and you start going down that hypothermia path. And so it, it's, it's one, those non-typical retrieving breeds. I think, you know, as we go into the hunt question, I think the question for those dogs is, should they be on this hunt or not um, as we get to this time of year? And yeah, now we can go to uh, yeah I appreciate you backing us up on that one. It, I think it is a little bit of it. I guess I'm going to jump on that one in the sense, too, is that, you know, a lab is not the best dog. A Chesapeake is not the best dog. This isn't a breed preference. This comes down right. to, you know, what do you want out of you? Know, what do you want your dog to do? How do you hunt? And yeah, that Munsterlander was an amazing dog, just not built for that particular day, that particular hunt. So not knocking exactly. breeds, not knocking no, anybody's exactly. choice. It's just understanding it. So I think the oversight though, Joe, is you take your dog out in cold weather and it goes bad. What does that mean? What What's the, you had a, something went terribly wrong on a cold weather hunt with your dog. What Describe a situation. So I, I think this is the situation that, that, you know, you described, you know, you take a dog into conditions that maybe they weren't built for, um, you know, it, it's in, and so what happens is, is that, you know, maybe it was windier, maybe it was colder, maybe the water temperature was lower than we thought, or we, you know, I think the other thing that happens is, you know, not so much this year because we're in the middle of a drought, but, you know, a lot of the last several years, you know, you were in standing water to be in cover, to be on water's edge in a lot of these sloughs where, you know, potentially years past, you could be on dry ground. And so I think it's, it's being a, you know, similar to the heat stroke talk where I say you have to be responsible and be the, the governor for your dog's performance. I think the same thing has to happen in cold weather. You have to be observant because that dog is going to attempt to do whatever you ask. And so, you know, you tell the dog to stand on this, you know, marsh stand that's covered in water, he's going to do it. But we start seeing that dog start getting a little sway, doesn't seem like he's home, refuses to, to, to go on a retrieve. I think we have to take a, a, a hard stop and get that dog warmed up. And that might be ending the hunt when mallards are pouring in and, you know, the dream situation that you had, but that dog's got to take priority. And so I think, you know, the, the, they'll let you know when they're not having fun. And so I think more so in cold situations than in heat situation. And so we see a lot of heat stroke and that's kind of, you know, the opposite we're talking about, but it's still temperature related. I think a heat stroke dog will run itself up to the point that it collapses. Most of these cold dogs start saying, I've kind of had enough. And it's just a matter of, can you pick up on those cues before it gets too far where now we have collapse or we have shock, you know, or those sort of potentially non-reversible sort of things. And so I think it's being able to read your dog, you know, is it a dog that's always keyed in on the sky looking for ducks that suddenly now he's just shivering, looking back at the truck or looking up at you. We may need to reevaluate what we're doing at that point. I, I think it's important, Joe, to, to talk of the potential gravity of this discussion, this overhunting your dog, in the cold, beyond its physical capabilities, it can die, right? Like we're, we're talking about possibility absolutely. of death. Yep. I, I'm both ends. Yes, absolutely. It's, it's, that's, it, it, 
that's what we're talking about. You know, it's, it's not, Oh, we just got cold and we're going to warm them up. It's, are we going to get them so cold that we start this cascade of shock in, in potentially death? Because I think the other part of it, you know, oftentimes we're not five or 10 feet from our vehicle where we can just turn on the heater and get them warmed up. You know, it's, it's, you're, you're, you're gonna have to make some decisions, right? Like, am I going to leave my spread and my gun and, and get this dog back to the truck because we walked in through water and now I'm going to have to carry this dog out. You know, it, do I have a five mile run up or down river in a boat with this ice cold dog? And so it's, it's something that, you know, decisions are going to have to be made quickly because once we get to the point that you're recognizing there's a problem, that problem's probably been going on for a while and the dog was good at hiding it. Once they're no longer able to hide it, that cascade can start to, to, to tumble downhill very, very quickly. Yeah, I agree with that. That's a really good point. And, and I look at, you know, I have horses, dogs, and both horses and dogs, they don't show you the problem until it's really bad. Typically, you know, there might be subtle ish things that you can pick up on, but you know, that they can have terminal, uh, complications that were coming for quite some time before they even showed it to you. Absolutely. And I guess that's toughness. I don't know. I don't know what you call that, but it's just, you know, that, that is part of having animals is just constantly being in queue with their behaviors and changing behaviors. So, okay. So then we'll go into that, into that hunt. So I always, I've always in cold weather conditions, I always have a vest on my dogs. I think it, obviously it keeps them warm, just like a vest keeps me warm. I do think at times, I don't know, I don't, I'm not thinking like a vet here, but I do think that a vest can also help with buoyancy, which maybe it it helps them as a swimmer. Do you, do you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I think it provides buoyancy. Okay. And then, and then for me, I think it's really important and I'd love to hear your take on that. You're right. There are some hunts where we're hunting, you know, in flooded cattails just to be near the open water. I always try to keep my dog out of the water, standing in the water, you know, especially when it's really cold. And so is that something that I'm guessing is, is something you'd prescribe as well? I would. And, and it's, it's, to me, it, I always thought that that was kind of a, a no brainer, but I've subsequently hunted with guys that don't think that way where the, you know, the dog won't be up on a stand. It'll be in elbow deep, you know, water standing for the whole hunt or the marsh stand will be in two inches of water as opposed to two inches above the water. And so it's, I think it's something that people need to be more aware of, particularly the later in the season that we get, that you're just robbing that dog of of heat if it's in contact with that water the whole time. Um, I think just as important as protection from the wind. And so, you know, maybe we're not in an enclosed dog um, blind, but I think, you know, positioning that blind, the stand in the cattails in a way where that dog's just not getting, you know, a constant buffeting of the wind every time it gets out of that cold water, because that too is going to rob the heat. And so I think where you position that dog is vitally important the later in the season that you get. Um, absolutely. And then to, to touch on the vest thing, I think the other thing that is missed is the fit on the vest. And so, you know, like my Chessie was a a very athletic, non-typical Chessie. She wasn't this big blocky dog. Um, And likewise, not many people are making vests for cockers. And so, you know, that when, with those two dogs, I had to do a lot of adjustments with those vests. So, you know, getting the neoprene cement and and the aqua seal and, and especially in the neck and around the belly, making those vests have a form fit, because if we leave that neck open, because you have this dog that has a bigger chest, but a skinnier neck, that water just pours in. And so now we got this pool of water sitting within that vest. Um, There is a, 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 product on the market and tip of the hat to a, a, a colleague, Ira McCauley, the, the Versa vest that Momarsh came out with is adjustable to the fit of your dog. And I, I recently got one of those. It, it's, it's a dang good product. I think, you know, when I first got it out of the box, I will be honest, I was cussing it because the Velcro is so tight. And as you're making the adjustments, it's a pain to adjust but it was by far the most dialed in vest that I've ever put on a dog. Um, and I think that's important, you know, when, when, when divers wear wetsuits or dry suits or things like they're not wearing these big baggy things, you want them to be tight. And that's, I, we want these vests to fit. Otherwise I think you're just, you're robbing the dog of heat by not having a good fitting product on them. You know, it just, it, it just kind of occurred to me that all of the things that we're talking about for dogs, we would, we would say the same thing for ourselves. 
you know, your analogy right. of a wetsuit. It's tight. It's form-fitting. It doesn't allow water in. You know, if are you going to want to, in November, are you going to want to stand in the water in shorts? Are you going to want to stand in the water in, you know, your thin Sims fishing waders? Or are you going to want, you know, heavily insulated waders, you know, to not rob you of your own heat? So the same thing goes for a dog. You know, one of the things that I do, you know, obviously... It's not always convenient to have a, a dog stand. You know, if you're walking into a hunting situation with the waders on your, with your decoys on your back, one of the areas that I do is I'll, I'll put my dog up on a muskrat hut, you know, right. to keep them, you know, I'll, I'll pick a location where my dog can get out, right? It's just, it's just so important. So I think, you know, hunt out of your duck boat, see if you can get the dog on shore, see if you can get them elevated on a stand on a muskrat hut or some other feature that's sticking out of the water. And then I think when you're getting into the south, I see this a lot, you know, guys hunting out of flooded timber, you know, it, it looks like a tree stand, but it's built right. for dogs, you know, and, and it keeps that dog completely elevated out of the water. So I think we're talking about a lot of common sense here, but but I think it's important to to cover all all the bases as well. Yeah. And I think that people get wrapped up in the moment, right? Like you get excited, the dog's excited. And, you know, we're talking a game of inches sometimes, right? That that dog just is he was just two inches higher would be up out of that water. And I think that again, you get caught up in the excitement and the dog came back for a retrieve and now he's standing, you know, beside you as opposed to on the stand, but he's getting cold and it, you know, just having situational awareness and not letting the excitement of a late season hunt take over and take care of that dog through the whole hunt. And while it may be common sense, it seems like when that goes by the wayside is when some of these disasters happen and so just not getting too caught up in the moment and being aware of where that dog is i think is vitally important okay awesome i think the one last thing here that that i'd like for for us to cover is ice so we talked about having your dog in good good body condition well fed you know you're hunting in the right situation they're elevated they're wearing a vest they're not sitting in the water but now you have ice and so that's that obviously that transition that many experience hopefully everyone experiences it this year that probably means you had good hunting but there's open water and there's ice forming. There's ice existing. Talk, let's talk about that for a little bit, Joe. Yeah, and I'll be honest that ice scares me more than than the potential for hypothermia. I think you know, like I said, I think these dogs are built for cold weather hunting. Ice scares me because what they're not designed for is is getting under ice and getting back out of that ice or breaking through. And so I personally have I don't hunt dogs in ice at all. And, and I just cringe, you know, you see the social media posts of, you know, guys with the ice eaters and, and, you know, the, the dog making retrieve out on the ice that's outside of the pocket. I, I just like my, my heart stops every one of those pictures of the, what if, what if, what if we dropped a, a bird on the edge of that hole and it dove underneath because every dog I've ever owned will go under after, you know, underwater after a cripple. And I just can't imagine the panic of a dog going under the ice and it happens. There's a, a, a memorial on a hunting uh, a, a waterfall production area just west of town to a hunter and his dog that the dog got in trouble and the guy went in after it and neither of them came out. And so it's it's one of those situations that I personally avoid. Um, you know, I know people hunt ice in shallow water situations where they say, well, you know, it, it's, it's the dog never can always touch in breaking ice. That still scares me uh, because I think that you're asking that dog to, to undergo some trauma that it doesn't need to, as far as, you know, breaking thicker ice, if it breaks through. So I, I kind of have a hard and fast, like, I just, I hate dogs and ice. I, I hate dogs and ice because I think there's just too much risk there. Um, you throw in moving water and I think that that makes it even heightened. So, you know, you, you hunt in a backwater with, with current that's keeping water open, but you got the more stagnant water frozen. And, you know, to me, I, I just see the dangers of those situations too much for me to enjoy the potential because let's be honest some of those holes could be some of the best duck hunts that you've ever had and i think we've all had those duck hunts where i mean you can be standing in the spread and the mallards are you know trying to land on top of you it i'll oftentimes hunt those types of hunts without a dog because i just i can't take the risk yeah that's my soapbox <laughs> yeah you you can't unsee what your eyes have seen right and right. you know my, my wife works in a profession where 
if you're talking to my wife, something bad happened to you. And so as a mom, you know, she, she brings that perspective to our kids and she goes, I've seen that. I've seen that. And the same thing has to go for you, Joe. It's that, right. you know, you, you see the cuts, you see the, you know, the injured dogs is, are, are cuts from ice a, con- a consideration as well? They are. I, I don't think we see a ton of it. It's more of the abrasions. And so it's not, you know, it's, it's one that, what I see with that is now, now I've created an issue that I'm going to have to manage, you know, for a couple of weeks potentially to make sure it doesn't become a bigger issue. And so I can't say that I've ever seen like a big laceration, like, you know, a dog stepping on barbed wire or, you know, something hidden in the muck in the mud, you know, that, that lacerates the foot. It's more of an abrasion issue with that. And so it's, it's, nothing horrible, but I just, again, it's, it's, is it a necessary injury that the dog needs to be babied through or not? And in, in my mind, typically I'd say no now, and I should probably back up like, you know, skim ice, the first ice of the year where, you know, the first two feet of, of ice, you know, going out to open water where it's just that real thin ice. I've hunted a lot of dogs in that type of ice. I'm talking, you know, where, where you have to actually stomp or stand on it and bounce to break that ice that's what we're talking about. So skim ice is to me a whole different thing. Like I'm fine with skim ice. It's actual ice that takes some effort to break that I get concerned with both with the dog going under and the dog having to break through it to make a retrieve that I think that that's where a dog's going to get unnecessarily injured. You know, but you know, I think as, as you know, you probably run into this as well with winter pheasant hunting, right? You have, you know, some of those cattail you know, rings around a wetland, that's some of the best, that's some of the best winter pheasant habitat. And so that, you know, even those upland dogs can get themselves in that, you know, I guess, in that transition from open water to frozen to get into those situations. So it's not just, you know, the waterfowl hunting dogs, but I think the one thing that I never thought of is, you know, I've lived in the North, I've hunted around cold conditions and ice my entire life. And I never thought of that duck diving under the ice and the dog going after it. I've, I've never thought of that, it, but that yeah. happens. It does happen. And, you know, the, the, and not that I've seen it, but the first time you talk to somebody that's experienced it, like it'll cure you of wanting to, to put your dog in that situation. Yeah. That's enough. I, I actually just knowing that that's a possibility, thinking about it, picturing it, that's enough. Um, you know, and then I guess we all have to think of that situation as too. We, you know, we love our dog. And if that dog is, you know, walking across the ice, I think that's maybe a better way of describing it, or not a better way, another way. But if the ice is thick enough that that dog is actually going to try to walk across it and is at risk of breaking in, that's kind of the conditions we're talking about here. So if that Correct. dog falls through and it's not strong enough to break it, you know, with its front paws alone, it's stuck. Right. And it's not going to get out unless you go help it. And is that a situation that is safe for yourself? So you're just, right. I, I think the rule of thumb is just don't put your dog, don't put yourself in those situations. There's no duck worth it. There's no duck hunt worth it at all. And, right. uh, you know, that's a situation for you to carefully navigate that with waders or your duck boat or your canoe, which also have trappings as well. You know, if you right. break through that ice with your duck boat and you capsize anyway. So it's just, hey, you can be the toughest most BA guy out there in the world, and it's just not worth it. So, right. Right. Joe, anything we what didn't happens is. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no. I, I, to your point of you know the toughest BA, when it's a successful hunt in those conditions, I think that that's what you know goads people into doing it because they are some of the best hunts is around that type you know, and so when it goes great, when that dog made that long icy retrieve, those stories are memorable stories, and I think it's the going after that high or going after that story that it, that, you know, most tragedies start with heroic intentions. Right. And that's, I think that that's, it's, it's the potential for, you know, that, that heroic story that puts some of these dogs in these unfortunately tragic situations. Yeah. I've had it's it, I've had some real late season hunts that would have been dangerous for the dog. I did not hunt with the dog and one that pops out. I remember it was a great mallard hunt. And there was a small pocket of open water. And so most of the ducks, when we, when we shot them, they landed on the ice. And I remember this one particular one, it skidded across the ice out of gun range. And a mink came out during the hunt <laughs> and grabbed one of the Drake mallards and 
drug it back into the cattails no and never never to be found again. <laughs> but uh, yeah, let's have let's have more of those types of stories than than my dog died or or my right. hunting buddy didn't make it back with me. So I appreciate that, Joe. Anything that you know in the, in the subject of cold and and ice? Anything that we didn't cover? No, I think we kind of hit all of it. I think the big thing is just just being aware aware of what you're asking your dog to do because at the end of the day, you're the decision maker for that dog. They're going to do what you ask, and so just make sure you're you're doing what's right by them. That's a good that's a good rule of thumb. I appreciate Joe. Let's let's uh, finish with how do people find you? Find this information. Where would you direct them? Direct them anywhere. Yeah. yeah so um, my website is gundogdoc.com. Uh, and like I said, that it, we put quite a bit of information up. Uh, more to come after the first of the year. You can do with sportingdog.com. Uh, I, I contribute there. I have a podcast through them called Fueled. And so wherever you get your, your podcast, you can find Fueled. And then on Instagram, um, I'm kind of hit or miss as far as sharing uh, the adventures with, with my crew. But that's at Gundog Doc. Okay, sounds good. And so there's a, a lot of different ways to get in contact with Joe. If you forgot them all, <laughs> Delta Waterfall. So this podcast, The Voice of the Duck Hunter, podcast has its own email address podcast at deltawaterfall.org send me any questions any ideas for shows if you have questions for joe i'll happily forward them to him and joe can reach out to you when he has the time so joe appreciate it i'd love to have you back on here there's when we were talking about dogs and hunting and you know the year-round companion and friend there's so many things to talk about and you know, at the beginning of this podcast, I found myself wanting to linger and talk about different things, but I had to find some discipline and stick with the cold weather topic here. So hopefully, you know, if you're listening to this and you're and you're hunting still this time of year, you know, you learned some tips here. Please use them. Take care of yourself. Take care of your dogs. Joe, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right. We'll catch you next Happy time. Happy to come back. All right. Absolutely. Thanks, Joe. Take care. Take care.